0: Welcome back to Born Curious, a new podcast from Harvard Radcliffe Institute. I'm your co-host, eva Lisa Estrada.
1: And I'm Heather Min.
0: We're mixing it up a little bit today and bringing you some highlights from an invitation-only event organized by Brittany White this past spring. Britt was a joint visiting practitioner at Radcliffe and Harvard Law School, And she is also an organizing fellow at the Institute to End Mass Incarceration and a voice for formerly incarcerated
1: black women. The event was organized for Harvard students from Radcliffe's Law, Education and Justice program and young people who are involved with the Massachusetts Department of Youth Services. Ratcliffe's Law, Education, and Justice initiative was created by our Dean, Tamiko Brown-Nagin, to support the rights of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, and to call attention to the devastating impact of mass incarceration in our country. It
0: was an incredible event. Lots of the kids invited didn't even know who would be speaking. And then out walks Meek Mill, an American rapper with a huge following who also happens to be a powerful voice for parole and probation reform. He co-founded the advocacy group Reform Alliance with several partners, one of them Jay-Z, with whom
1: he's worked on music. The panel also included Wallow, who spent 20 years in prison and is now a successful podcaster, influencer, and speaker on prison reform, and Ayana Bean, a Boston native who served federal time and now works as an advocate for at-risk women.
0: Now, when Meek Mill co-founded Reform about five years ago, a little after his release from prison, the organization targeted probation and parole reform. Their research showed that nearly 44 percent of people released from prison nationwide ended up returning in less than a year.
1: Meek himself was sentenced up to four years on a technical parole violation in 2017 and was not released until the popular hashtag freeMeekMill movement called for change. Let's dive in.
2: What up? My name is Brittany White. I go by Brit. I am the visiting practitioner in residence between the Institute to End Mass Incarceration at the Harvard Law School and here a 2022 Proud Fellow. I'm originally from Dayton, Ohio, grew up in Dallas, Texas. In 2009, I caught a trafficking charge in the state of Alabama. A lot of my community organizing work is about the experience of a woman who's been incarcerated in the deep red South, and I'm super happy to be here with you all. Uh,
3: I go by the name of Meek Mill, a young kid from Philadelphia. Y'all know my story, kind of if you don't. A young kid grew up in a single parent home. Uh you know, uh my environment led me to growing up in the streets So I was about 18 years old. When I was 18 years old, 19, I ended up catching a case, which I was carrying a, a firearm in Philadelphia in an environment where murder amongst black people was like normal on a daily base. And at that age, I felt like I needed to carry a firearm in the neighborhood where my dad was murdered That Uh being as though carrying that firearm, I got charged with A few other charges, and it was pointing a firearm at a police officer, which I would never do. Uh, Not suicidal, I never had plans of uh, ever trying to hurt a a public official or anybody in the world, especially a cop at that severity, which we know like a young black person would probably lose their life trying to pull a gun out on a cop. Uh, Selling cocaine, I always made, uh, just as a 16-year-old, with my mom being at work and my dad in the graveyard, I always just made a conscious decision that I didn't want to sell crack cocaine, but I got arrested with weed on me and I still got found guilty of selling crack cocaine to an undercover cop, which I never did, which was never a part of. Uh, through my times of from 18 to 31, I was on probation. I spent three, four years in jail, in and out of prison from technical violations. And when she sentenced me to two to four years, I had people in America stand up for me and. Of course, I I came up with a foundation, me, Michael Rubin, Jay-Z, a few others. And we came up with a reform, which led us to being here at Harvard today, which is a a big honor of myself to be in this building amongst you guys today.
2: It's an honor to have you. (laughs) So I just want to open it up. Wallo, is it cool if I start with you? You hear so many people talk from this perspective here at Harvard as academics about the law, and we often center law enforcement and lawyers when we talk about experiences with the legal system. But I remember back in 2009 when I struck a a jury and went to trial, it was one of the hardest things I did in my life. And every single person who loved me told me, bruh, just take the plea and I decided to go and strike that jury, and I, um, I lost. But I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what is that monkey on your back like when you're contending with the government and fighting for freedom?
4: It was, you know, me, I, I first got into the system uh, June 30th, 1990. I was 11 years old for a couple of days, and um, I got arrested for armed robbery in Philadelphia County, and, it wasn't that hard for me coming in the game, early because I got so institutionalized that I was just used to it. I was like a time machine. So I'd go in there and just take a deal, make mercy of the court most of the time. I'd be like, come on, Yana, uh, you know, get my time, so I'd go back out there and get busy again. So my my outlook was a little different than most people. I only went to one jury trial in my life. Have, I probably got locked up like 12, 15 times. So I went to one, or any other time. I'm pleading guilty before we even get to that phase I had the whole, I had my whole spill together. I don't want to waste the taxpayers' money on a boom, 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 and they give me a little leniency, and I get a deal, and I, you know, so I never was the one to try to like fight because every everything I got locked up for, I knew I done, like I was due to done my stuff. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people that's innocent. I just wasn't one of them. You know, so I did had to fight or figure it out or what I wanted to do. I'm like, I'm gonna just get this time and, and come back again.
2: Can you describe that violation of just knowing that someone has the capability to take away your freedom?
4: It's the reality here, man, you know, uh, to me, criminal justice system is a business. And, um, you you know, either you're gonna be a part of it or you're not. and You gotta respect that, America is big business, you know, jails, Um, and that's why rehabilitation is, is, is serious because you really gotta be on your own game going into some of these institutions. Because like with me, like, like I always say, when I was in jail, I wasn't in jail. I was in Yale. I wasn't in prison. I was in Princeton. I wasn't in state pen. I was in Penn State. I had to educate myself to be able to bounce back. You do know what I'm saying. So it was like, at the end of the day, I think it first start with accountability, and then it start with like, you don't even want to be a part of the system, because the system is designed for the comeback. Because uh, what business in America, you know, that don't want their customers to return. So I'm not never. I'm not looking at the system like, oh, they this, that, and that. I'm looking at it like, okay. I know you're not, I know how you gonna help me out when there's 500 of us on the cell block and we only got two counselors. So I know it's not designed for me really to learn unless I tap into myself and I was able to tap into myself and say, you know what, I'm done with that. You know, and I woke up and realized that, uh, uh, is, that the world was bigger than the hood and the mentality that we was running off. You know, cause a lot of these young cats get misled because we, we tell them that the streets is cool and all that is cool but nobody talk about when you're in jail you got three years in and got 17 to go. You know, because I got since the 19 and a half, the 52 years when I was 17, certified as adult for two armed robberies, two firearm convictions. So you know, a lot of stuff, like me and Meek talk about it all the time, man, like accountability changed the game. And once you get to a certain age, you know the system ain't for you, you gotta go, you gotta go a different sure. route, you know?
2: Sure. Ayana, can I direct the same question to you? What is, can you describe particularly from the unique experience of a woman what is it like to contend with the government for your freedom or to know that somebody has the power to take away your freedom?
5: Well, one of the things is that, um, and as Wallo just said, you don't contend with the government, you know? Um, being a person who has experienced a state prison sentence and also a federal prison sentence, um, I would like to say that, you know, when you see your documentation, it says the United States versus Ayana Bean. And it's like, oh, The whole world is against me, so if the whole world is against you, then who's for you and how can you fight that? You can't. No matter how much money you have or else Meek wouldn't be sitting here. He he could have fought his case too, right? But you can't buy your freedom that way. The world's against you.
2: I appreciate it. Meek, can I direct the same question to you?
3: From first grade to kindergarten to the fourth grade, I used to be a straight honor roll student. Uh, My dad died probably when I was like five, six years old. I read a book in prison. It was called the Fourth Grade Failure Syndrome. I don't know if anybody ever read that, but it's about like young kids that grow up in bad environments, and when they make it to the fourth grade, their life just spirals out of control. When I read that book, I thought about my life. And when I got to the fourth grade, I moved from a, a neighborhood that was it was still hood, but I moved to a, a hyper-violent neighborhood after that. And once I moved to that neighborhood, you know, I I, I kind of fell off from school. My classroom was more disruptive, more. I would say more bullies in the classroom, and it kind of made me adapt to that environment. Uh, From middle school to high school, by the time I turned 16 and 17 in Philadelphia, uh, if you check the records, uh, 2004, 2005, we got one of the highest murder rates in Philadelphia. So, you know, uh, carrying a gun was like the best decision for me as a young kid because my father was killed in this area. A lot of my friends and things were killed in that area. You know, I went straight from just honor roll student to disruptive classroom to you might lose your life tonight when you come outside. So me coming outside to that uh, led me to using marijuana, smoking weed at night, really. And I would say I've always been a guy that I wanted to live my whole life without using drugs. I'm, I'm based off of being sharp. I make music. I like to flow good. I like to remember my lines. I like to be on point. So I never was like a person that wanted to pursue the life of being high. But being caught up in the ghetto and seeing people die and going in and out of prison as a young person, it made me become somebody else. But as soon as the moment I got environment changed through music, you know, it changed my life. But I would say my monkey on the back. I'm 18 years old. Uh, I got a case for selling weed, really. I was supposed to have a case for selling weed and a gun which I was able to do the time for that. I made a decision, a conscious decision as a 17, 18-year-old. Going into prison, I got 30 charges. I don't understand any other charges uh, when I got to prison. When I got to the police station to talk to the judge about the bail hearing, you can't even speak for yourself. You know, just as an 18-year-old kid, I just thought that was kind of like super unfair to anybody who was innocent until proven guilty, and it was just common sense. Uh, when I made it to the prison, uh, I got lost in the system. Just an 18-year-old kid, you got 10 minutes to contact your lawyer, your mom, uh, whoever you can. And then, you know, when I came home from prison, they charged me with 30 charges. Uh, now, you know, a public defender, I don't know if you all know the backgrounds of the system, a public defender, they'll tell you that a public defender probably will lead you down a railroad to make you lose your freedom or lose your life. Uh, I came right back out to selling marijuana again because I had to get a lawyer to actually fight these 30 charges that I really didn't commit. I was supposed to have two or three charges. Now I'm in prison at 1918 with a $160,000 bill. That was a monkey. Uh, the system knew that I'm from a public housing environment. They have evaluations to know the type of background I come from, that I can't pay 160k bill. When I actually went to trial, I probably talked to my lawyer two times a 15-minute stand within, a, within three years. There's no way he could be prepared to fight my trial or fight my case. I don't even know this guy. Uh, of course he knows I'm uneducated. He knows I'm illiterate. He knows I doesn't know the secret language that he knows. And I couldn't even direct this guy to even attempt to fight a case for me. I went straight in the courtroom, lost everything. And that guy that was my lawyer, I never spoke to that guy again. And that was the rest of my life that I had to figure out through the system. So I would say the biggest monkey on my back was just even entering something as treacherous as an 18-year-old kid trying to figure out, how do I get out of this? And not losing my value on myself and not committing to that lifestyle.
2: (laughs) Y'all. Let to just put some air on that for a minute, because that's really profound, and you know me, I just have so much love and respect for you, because yeah. it was hard for me to fight my case privately and come back as a regular, regular Jane Doe, you know, for you yeah. to do that publicly, under the scrutiny and opinion of the whole world to see, I just can't imagine.
3: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, it was worse in the dark when I was going through this stuff, and Nobody heard anything I was going through. It was like, it was the worst. But when I knew people had an air on what I was going through and what I, what, I, what I had on my hands at the time, it made me feel better because I knew that like I had people that would actually speak up or say anything, not just as, and I, and I use this for a lot of people. When you label somebody as a criminal, you can make them people lose value on themselves, knowing that you might not have a second chance. Knowing me, I had people fighting for me and wanted to become better that judge giving me that two-year sentence i probably would have committed the rest of my life to just bitterness and probably involving myself with that lifestyle because i felt like my rap career was over i probably lost my house i would have lost my kids and you know i would have still had some money but that two years would have ruined the rest of my life and god let me get out of that situation even having a person with the opportunity and uh, knowing that you can have a second or a third chance because God give out how many chances he want is enough to have a person value uh, herself to want to rehabilitate and become someone for say if someone calling you a felon and saying you can't get a job and you're just like an alien to us.
2: And you're a beacon of hope because you represent possibility for so many people. Ayana. You know it was so important for me to have a woman represented on this panel. And part of that is because oftentimes men are afforded opportunities to profit, use their clout, street credibility, and have resources based off of their system, their experience in the criminal legal system. But women are often excluded from those same opportunities. Can you say why? Well, I don't, I don't want to
5: speak for the people who make that decision to say why, but I'll give you my thought as to why. Um, when prisons were created, when most things are created, it's not created with women in mind. So, you know, we have to, there's the term, you know, women break glass ceilings. Well, you know, there's never that term associated with men. They don't have to break a glass ceiling. The sky is just right there, they can keep on reaching as far as they want to go. So I think that in terms of how society is alone, it's just not that it's made for us to do. So when you have someone that's able to use their street credibility or, you know, their, you know, their finesse, their, their environment, their network of people, it's because kinda in our urban communities, in our black and brown communities, it's made cool like you get stripes if you go to prison. You know, that's something that is like it makes you tough. It makes you, it makes you legit. But for a woman, it's kind of like we didn't build prisons for you to be going to prison. We didn't build this environment for you to be here or belong here. And we definitely didn't create any resources for you when you come out. You know, so you have to create your own lane. You have to create these environments. Yeah, we, women get in trouble. Women make mistakes. If you take the heads of a family away, which would be the man, then the woman picks up the slack. Right, and then what does she have to do? Well, she can't afford a life for herself or her children off of welfare alone. So, you know, there's other choices and there's other decisions that people tend to make in order to actually just make ends meet most of the time. And that is a lot of
2: women. Ayana, I'm gonna stay with you and then while I'm coming to you next. Mm-hmm. Once people find out I'm, I'm formally incarcerated, they usually say one or two things. They used to say, you? You don't look like you've been in the system. And then when they find out that I have a trafficking marijuana charge, they start asking me inappropriate questions. Like, how much you get caught with? Mm -hmm. Who Who was you hustling for? That was your man's work. They say they feel very entitled to the personal details of my life. And I believe if I was a man, they would never come at me like that. And so I'm just curious. As a woman who's been in the system, do you, do you experience people being inappropriate with you?
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because, again, I'm a woman. So they think that that's OK to do. Not to offend anyone. Women are one of the most disrespected humans on Earth.
2: Black women. And especially women. black women. You can say it. Black yeah, women. especially
5: black women. We come from an urban community. We're from the black and brown. So if there's anything lower than, we're there at the bottom. But it's okay, because I know who I am, and my, what I did is not who Ayana is. That's something that Ayana did. You know, and it's about what I do right now. Thank you.
2: Wala <laughs> uh, Rob From reform put me on your podcast and had me follow you a couple years ago and it seems like every black man in my life knows who you are and they they drink their coffee and listen to your your daily check-in every single day and you are so inspiring and i just wonder so many people who are formerly incarcerated experience so many, so much shame and can't be public about the fact that they've been in the system or else they can't get housing, they can't get employed if people know these things. So how have you navigated shame on your journey, and how do you continue to do so?
4: Always. Uh, you know what's crazy? A lot of people, a lot of times, they don't believe me when I tell them I was in jail. Oh, you don't look like you was in jail. I'll be like, all right, well, you know. It's a duty of mine to tell people where I was at because I represent the possibilities after present. I'm out here holding it down for people that, uh, that I might go and never meet, but I'm, I'm, I'm knocking doors down and kicking doors down and showing them that it's, a, it's, it's thousands of more wallows that if you give them a shot, they're gonna kill it. If you give them a chance to execute and if you give them the proper opportunity, they're gonna kill it. So I'm representing that, so I, be, I'm always, I always tell people where I came from, you know what I mean? Because my story is my glory. You know what I'm saying? And I gotta let them know that, just like Mika tell you, a lot of stuff that I know, a lot of stuff, why I'm sharp and I'm on point was a lot of old heads that might don't get the opportunity to come back that's in the penitentiary They put a lot of game on me. You know what I'm saying? A lot of our elders that we lost in the community, they're in the pen, and they taught me a lot of things. Uh, so I'm, I'm always, I'm never ashamed of where I was at, and I always look to, to tell people as much as possible, you know, um, to tell people as much as possible about the journey because that's where I come from. But but before I go further, I got to get a shout out to some special folks. Now, uh, a lot of people, they hear about reform, but I don't think they understand the importance of reform and what they do for our community. And and the benefit that comes from reform is giving people that chance and and going to fight for people that can't fight for themselves. I'm a dude that grew up, in the system, we never, listen, it wasn't even cool to talk about rights for people that was in jail, or you do the crime, you do the time. You don't got no rights, you don't mean nothing. You some this gonna be on your jacket forever. But reform is kicking down doors. And um, I'm, I'm thankful that Meek had, to, uh, you know, his situation put a light and it opened the door. We not here with reform if it wasn't for Meek getting crucified in the courtroom. You see what I'm saying? A lot of people hear about the story, but I was in there that day. And, you know, when Mike Rubin came pull me to the side and we go to take a break, Meek's sitting there because Meek looking like, what the fuck is going on? Right. And Mike Rubin said, yo, Willow, this is what they do in the court. Just for that Caucasian man to see how we be executed in them courtrooms, it opened his eye because he was, and then he get up to speak on Meek behalf and she looked at him like, you ain't nothing either. So this started a movement that's changing lives across the country, getting legislated. Listen, think about this, when did we ever have anybody fight on the strength of the people that the world forgot about? Oh, think about that. So reform represents something that's, that for me is emotional. You know, for me it's, uh, it's hope. For me, I just know that some brothers and sisters and some people that, that never had no representation got it. real-time, big-time people caring about them now, caring about the welfare of us. Caring about the struggle of us. Caring about the opportunities that we pose to have. Caring about how we treat it on probation and parole. And I'm saying that for me because right now I'm in a situation where as though they helping me out. You see what I'm saying? I'm on parole to uh, October 29th, 2048. Say that one more time because what they
2: what I'm missed it while I I'm home. on
4: parole to October 29th, 2048. But it ain't stopped me. I, but no matter that, that invisible, that invisible cell that I'm in, I still got to move and get busy to let them know this is what we can do under all circumstances because we some extraordinary individuals. The whole reform staff for getting out there, touching the community, filling community, making sure people got employment, making sure people got programming that they need, and just making sure people know you ain't alone. That's very important. So, you know, uh, I'm just thankful for them. And I, and I always got to give shout out to reform because they're doing the real work that never been done in the history of life. You know what I mean? So I'm thankful to them.
2: Yo, that's the perfect segue. (laughs) That's the perfect segue to come back to you, Meek. I wanna just share a short story. So I came home September 6, 2014 on a 20 year sentence. So in the state of Alabama, they give you split sentences. You serve every day of five years and then you come home and do 15 years on probation. Well, if you're in prison, and you act up on that 20, they pull your split, and now you're on a straight 20. Or if you come home and you violate probation, they violate you, and now you go back on a straight 20 instead of a split. And so I came home on 15 years of probation, paying $76 every month to my probation officer to remain free. And after three years, my probation officer submitted me back to the state of Alabama for what's called a reconsideration. Well, when you have a split sentence, you're not under probation or parole, you're still under the jurisdiction of your judge. My judge retired while I was in prison and left me in there. So when I went for my reconsideration, I went to the judge who inherited me, who had never seen me before. And I took two of my mentors back to a very rural town in Alabama and went before them for my reconsideration. I thought it was gonna be easy. So I told them I didn't need any lawyer, it was gonna be a formality. My probation officer in Dallas had recommended me, we was just going through formalities. They were smarter than me and got a local lawyer. As We're sitting there, like the four of us are sitting here and the lawyer walks up to me, Meek, and she says, I don't wanna alarm you, but they're trying to hit you with a $150,000 fine at the last minute. They said it was a clerical error. And as soon as she said that, they said, Brittany White, and it was my time to come before the judge. I didn't even get time to process what happened. So we get before the judge, and my prosecutor said, "Miss White has been a model probationee. We recommend that she be let off probation. Except in 2010, when I was sentenced, There was a clerical error, and we forgot to give her the mandatory $150,000 fine for trafficking. After she pays that, we're happy to let her go. And so we all look at the judge. I make my plea. My mentors make my plea. And the judge who never met me before let me off probation, and I was able to walk out of there because I had an army of people behind me. And I'm just so grateful for organizations like REFORM because my story is not an anomaly, it exists across the country. So can you just talk a little bit more about your experience with this amazing organization and why the issue of probation is so important to you? Uh,
3: the, um, at REFORM, uh, we focus on the issues of probation because that's just one level. Uh, with, with the system, you got many levels of bail reform, probation reform, sentencing reform. Uh, me and Michael Rubin on a visit. He took a brochure, and we sat down and just talked about what could we do to impact the system in the most largest way. Uh, me, instead of going after individual cases and circumstances of what happened in cases, me and Mike came up with a, a, a model to affect a large number of people that was incarcerated or under the system in America. And we looked at probation and parole. You know, uh, technical violations send a lot of people back to prison. I think 25% of the whole prison population is there for technical violations. And if I can explain a technical violation to you guys, a technical violation is not committing crime. So if I'm on probation and I live in Philadelphia and I go across the Ben Franklin Bridge to New Jersey, which is two minutes away, I lived in Philadelphia. I moved my son to a better environment and I moved my son to New Jersey. And just to go get my son every day or drop him off from school was a violation. Like she just said, her judge retired. In the middle of her life, you know, that's that's a big deal. You know, it might not be a big deal to a judge, but you know, that was her whole life. And probation, most probation offices around America close at five o'clock. So, you know, my son, after school, school program, he gets out of school, daycare at 5.30. If I come in town, you know, I, I live my life on the road as an artist and I try to be a great father, but if I'm on the road for two weeks, and I get that one day to come home, you know, I might get it at the last minute, and it might be four o'clock, five o'clock. If I can't contact my probation officer, I can't go get my son from school. But what do you think uh, I did every day? Do you think I went to get my son from school in the middle of a violation? Yes, I went to go get my son from school every time because in my mind, I was willing to Take that violation to continue to be able to father my son's life because I knew that was a common sense rule that didn't make any sense. So we took all statutes and rules uh, amongst a board of smart people, businessmen, and people who actually care about this situation, uh, reforming the system. And you know, we came up with common sense things that don't anything doesn't make any sense in the system. She got 20 years for marijuana. But you know, in, in America, marijuana is legal. You know, people been Snoop up been smoking marijuana since I was three on television. You know, I ain't know you could get 20 years for you know for selling marijuana. Even when I was 18 years old, I used to sell marijuana. I got locked up. If you check the record, I think it was $18 in my pocket. I was 18 years old. I got locked up with men 34 years old, 33, 28. They charged me. As the commander of that whole drug operation, I just was a young, broke kid with $20 in my pocket and four bags of weed. So, you know, just to be able to have an outlet, because I talk about value, because I come from not being felt like I wasn't valued. just having an outlet for people that's in the darkness, I think, just is a big deal for our culture and all. Because I talk about me, I talk about doing things like stop the violence, environmental things that lead up to uh, being incarcerated, because there's a lot of different angles to it. Uh, I try to tap in places where I know that it's super effective. And, and probation was one of the ones where it affected my life. I started at five years of probation and ended up with 18 years of probation. She just kept adding time on to it. And you know me, I'm one of the lucky ones and I'm strong. You know, they, they could send me to jail four times, I'm gonna still smile. I'm gonna still come home and say, I'm still gonna chase my dreams every time I went to prison. I said, I'm going to come back 10 times harder and chase my dream. And if anybody was following me, you see Meek Mill hot. Go to jail. i beefing with Drake. It went down. Go to jail. Go back <laughs> up. Because I used it every time as my motivation. I didn't let it bitter me out. I hope that has to be nobody else's path. But I didn't let it bitter me. And you know, we have an open way now for people. I think it gives people a chance of hope and a, a chance of enlightenment to know that when you get caught in a system, that's not the end of your life if you made a mistake.
2: Right. <clears throat> so I'm gonna offer everybody one last question before we open it up and take questions from the audience. Yeah. And I'm gonna go to Ayana first. What would you like your legacy to be? What will they remember? Well,
5: I would like them to know and you know, more so my family to know because I think that that's very important to have something to follow. But I would like them to know that I fell a million times I banged my head, like I have a big forehead, so I bang my head a lot of times. All pretty
2: girls do. <laughs> All pretty girls got big foreheads. That's right.
5: But I want them to know, even though I fell a million times, I banged my head a million times, that I stood up five million times. And I stood tall. I'm only 5'1", but I stood seven feet tall. Yes, and I want them to know that.
2: Wallo. Yeah. <laughs> What would you like us to remember you as? What would your legacy be?
4: As somebody that just was a, um, really a helper of the hood, you know, just really pushing people, letting them know we got a shot, you know, never giving up. And um, there's always believing in, uh, you know, who we are. I think that belief thing, like I push people to believe every morning, you know what I mean? I encourage people every day to be the best they could be. and. Um, Just a person that let people know no matter what you're going you're not what you're going through you know because a lot of times i remember when they used to come in my cell strip me down even of them slave conditions i knew i was a king they got me ass naked they stripping me i'm like man let's get it done let's get it done come on it ain't gonna stop me you know so i just think a lot of times we we, uh we take on what we're going through because we getting high down me and you're a fiend because you in jail, they don't mean you're in me. It's a mindset. My main thing be just, just a person that, while I was a person to just help people, man, and um, and 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 I'ma live forever, because I'm leaving something out here. Every day I get up, I'ma make sure I leave something out here. Whenever I expire, I left something out here. Uh, I encouraged, I pushed, and I believed in people that the world forgot about, you know, and, and, and as long as I got that, I'ma live forever.
2: Me. What will your legacy
3: be? Uh, I never really said this like this, too. I'm, I'm not going to really tap on the music. Uh, what I, I want people to know my legacy for, for what you know Meek Mill for, what I would want to leave people with, uh, that I'm just a young kid from the ghetto that decided to start working my way out of the ghetto to take care of my mom, my sister, and my grandma because I just thought that was like... A, uh, honorable person, if you the young man out your house taking care of your mom and your grandma and your sister, they was the three women in my household. I'm an average young kid that just grew up in an environment. Uh, I got one of my friends with me in a crowd. We went to jail all our lives until they took us out of that environment. The moment we got out of that environment, we never been back to prison again. So, you know, just who I am as a black man, uh, what I represent. You know, you might see me on talking about reform, or you might see me talking about things that don't have to do with the lifestyle I came up in. I don't like people to, to, you know, this is like a place where God put me, you know, I got locked up, people stood up for me. Uh, we came up with reform. This is not a gimmick, this is not a clout, this is not how I power uh, my, my, my rap career. I didn't get paid to come here today. I gotta spend money to come to this because- We this, grateful. Yeah, no, I'm saying, I, I, you know, Much obliged to you. Uh, In the industry, you know, you got a lot of music. You got a lot of PR tricks that can make people look a certain way, and they might not actually be that way. Yes, I use profanity. I come from the streets. My music is not the cleanest. I don't live in a lifestyle of crime. I don't sell drugs to my community, like the stuff that I came up in my environment. I overcame that, and that's where I come from. That's not who I am. I know what that is, and I know what that's about and just be the one young person to my culture to lay out a narrative to the young black people that you could be some things like me. Like, growing up, I used to want to be the guy on the corner that was going to jail because that's all we seen in our environment. All we seen was failure. So even if you almost made it big, it was still a lot. Like, even back in my hood, they used to say, what kind of car you want? I'm like, I want a Rolls Royce. People used to actually tell me I was crazy and make me feel bad about myself for wanting more and me actually making it here today, I would say lead a legacy uh, to the young people to know you could do anything and take things to the highest level. I never thought I would be in here today.
4: Um, a lot of times we we, uh, we get environments and we be humble. Uh, if, if you hear Meek rap, he gonna pop it on that rap song. He gonna let you know that he that, you know what I mean? But, uh, we never talk about this, but I you know, and I said this to him, him one time. We from Philadelphia. When it comes to the people that the world forgot about and the real people at the bottom, Meek is Rocky to us. Meek did the unthinkable. He wasn't supposed to make it everybody in his class of artists, they didn't make it. But to be able to get on this higher level and to be able to change lives, his legacy gonna live forever. It's somebody that's in jail in Illinois, Pennsylvania, somebody that got sent back in uh, St. Louis. Kansas City, in some way, they're going to be affected by the work that reform is doing because of Meek. So Meek, he going to play. I'm cool, enemy, but Meek is the Rocky to the Hood man.
2: He really that guy. He really that guy. I just want my legacy to be that you know I'm from Dayton, Ohio, and I actually got my homie here, Meek from the city and you remember back in the early 90s when they barricaded the community of Five Oaks where I'm from and I always tell people before I was ever locked up by the state I was incarcerated in my own community in the early 90s and people know that even as a woman that I pop my stuff I talk for my people and I'm unapologetic about my power All right, so now we have some time to take questions from the audience.
6: My name is Prince. I got a question for all three of y'all because I speak for jail reform and community activism. So if you know what was the exact moment or what happened in your life when you was like, I want to help
3: people and give back to my community, can you break that down for us and when that was or what happened for you? Mine's when I seen people actually supporting me. I grew up in a single parent home where you got like your mom and your sister and that's your last support system. When I seen like, Thousands of people actually rallying for me. I made my mind up that, like, I'm based off a of loyalty to my programming, that I'm gonna make sure I pay those people back with the same energy they gave me. Yeah.
5: Um, my moment was um, after I was released from federal prison in 2014. I um, probably like the 100th job that I did a quarry background check, and I couldn't get another job. I was like. I have to do something about this. So it was, it was depressing, you know. You, I, I have a condition that I have to have a job, right? But I have a quarry, so where do you want me to go work? That I can afford to pay my restitution and live in the city of Boston. You
4: know, that would've been. My, my, my I started putting in major work as soon as I came out of the prison because I seen too many dudes that was supposed to be the old heads running with the young boys and not giving no game, and everybody was afraid to speak truth to the young boys. When, when um, I always believe in if and you can't teach what you don't know, you can't lead where you don't go. So I made sure I gave it to the youngest from the chest. If you know my work, I tell them exactly what it is, whether they like it or not. So I knew that was my duty and that was my position from our community, and I just start giving it to them, straight through the gram, straight in, in person, and, and that's what it happened, as soon as I came out of prison.
2: Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, like... Over here, name and
3: question, please, quickly. Uh, what's good, y'all? My name is Michael, I'm from uh, Jersey, North. Um, I I really uh, like what Reform's doing because I feel like y'all are really tackling the, the system. Uh, what else uh, you guys think uh, you could tackle that's a part of the system that help, that uh, brings black people down? Like What uh, systematic issues uh, you think we're possible to uh, tackle?
4: Um, the way this game go, we gotta focus on tackling what we tackling right now. See, a lot of times, Things go crazy because we be octopus, we be all over the place, but reform can't do everything. You see what I'm saying? You might gotta tap into other organizations. You know, reform got an area of concentration right now that they focusing on, so we gotta focus on that and get that locked in before we can jump over. There's many issues we could talk about. Everybody got a different issue that they fighting within the community, but they're doing something and they good at what they doing. She's you know what I'm saying. You got to know your strength and respect your weakness. Know your strength and align with your weakness. They know their strength and they stick into that until we get to a certain place. You think what I'm saying? Big Rob we're gonna make sure you get, you know. Yeah. I'll that just input. also
2: say quickly um, before we hear directly from the CEO to answer your question. Reform is part of a larger movement, which is the formerly incarcerated movement. And you have people in this room who are tackling different parts. To Wallow's point, everybody has a lane. Probation and parole is one area, and part of the problem is too many people try to do too much that they're not excelling at anything, and so we want people to stay at their, in their lane and be excellent at what they do. And other folks, like the Stacy Bordens, the Armands, the Nobles in the room, to be in their lane, doing their work, and being excellent, and that way we can tackle the problem holistically.
6: So I really appreciate the question. Um, reform is focused on probation and parole, um, but what I When I started the organization two years ago, Meek, myself, and Ruben were together. Uh, We were were going to uh, Virginia because a piece of legislation was just passed and we were going for the signing ceremony. And Meek, I don't know if you remember this question, but you, you raised it like, okay, what happens when someone leaves the system? What else? Like besides ending their probation, what else can we do? And I felt charged as I was in UCI. I felt charged by that question. We can't just send people back to the communities that they came from and, and, and expect you know all of a sudden things to change unless we are part of it. And so at Reform what we did is we built out an economic pathways program. So we go city to city, uh, hopefully in partnership with NBA teams because we want this to be a big deal. Um, and we do large scale job fairs for people impacted by the system for people exiting the system to get people jobs, right? Because we know um, that jobs, housing, um, and supportive services is what people need when they when, when they leave. And so we want to do our part as an extension of probation and parole reform to get people jobs so they can uh, be on their way to provide for their families and their community. So that's that's an additional piece that we're doing in, in addition to probation and parole.
2: My man right here, your name and your question, please.
3: Yes, um, my name is Truth. Yeah, so um. Formerly incarcerated, I've been out about six months, I'm on life parole, just got out after service 16 years. And I was watching a lot of what you all were doing with the Reform um, Alliance, and it was beautiful to see while I was in there, very encouraged. I started um, a storytelling project called Explanations from Exile. And what it highlights is um, violence, right? So two thirds of the state prison populace Nationally, is incarcerated for violent crime, right? So we talk about decarceration and we talk about ending mass incarceration. I'm curious, like, what efforts, um, if any, that you all are dealing with to uh, address violence um, at the front end of prosecution to ensure that you know we're not overcharging and over sentencing um, people. The vast majority of the state prison populace.
6: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that that question and. Um, I've been doing this work for 25 years, and so about, about 20 of those 25 was working on sentencing reform. Right? So I could kind of talk to you about campaigns, Proposition 57 in California that I worked on that addressed violence. But reform is uniquely focused on probation and parole. That's our, that's our lane, that's what we do. And there are organizations all across this country, uh, like the one I used to work for, that are taking on uh, the question of violence. Where we do weigh in on it, though, is on parole boards. Who's on the parole boards? What's the makeup of the parole boards? What's the decision-making process of people on the parole boards? And how are people supported once they are on parole? Um, So we weigh into those conversations, and that that directly speaks to the violence question.
3: Me, I'm working on working with all the sports teams from different, me, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I seen yesterday, the Sixers just announced something that they combat gun violence in Philly. Uh, I was talking to Robert Kraft about that. We took a trip to Poland. Uh, He he just wanted me to learn about his background and things that he cared about with his uh, culture. Uh, My background, when it was time for him to stand up for me, you know, he ain't just stand up for me and put his neck out on the line for a random person. Uh, Through time, he always learned about my background and everything I had going on. So, you know, I try to use powerful resources and take people that don't come from my background and educate them about our upbringing and... Get them and invest the things to try to uh, combat violence and stuff like that in Philadelphia because that's where I actually experienced and I know about it at
7: Hello, I'm Sky Brooks. I'm from North Philadelphia. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, North too. Your, your stories really resonated with me because it's not unusual to you know hear about a cousin that's gone away for 10 years and like you won't speak to them. Probably again, or like hear about family members that's coming back from serving 27 years in prison, and like th- this is very normal in the city. Um, I'm wondering how can specifically young people in Philadelphia? How can we get involved? Because there was that moment where you know the Sixers was throwing the free Meek shirts in the crowd, and we all we all repping our free Meek shirts. But I wonder how how can I take that a step further? How can I organize people at my old high school and people within the city, young people, to really get involved and care about this when it is so normal?
4: Just do it. Okay. See, um, the young people, y'all, the, y'all, the, y'all, y'all, the owners of tomorrow. Y'all dictate the pace. Y'all know the technology. Y'all know how to. Y'all know how to organize. Y'all know how to put it together on through technology. I just think. Um, it's about just putting a team together, people that care just like you, and going to the communities that you feel as though is affected the most, and just lending a hand, being there, being there, you know, just being visible, and um, be willing to work. I don't think you, you need no permission. You don't need no permission, and sometimes you don't even need the finances. You just need to be there, and everything will come in line when you when you, when you putting in the work. See, the, nothing work but work. When you see the work, the finances are gonna come, the support gonna come, uh, the celebrity backing gonna come, all that stuff come. But sometimes people gotta just put the work in because there's so many people talking about something, I wanna do, I wanna do, but the people that do is gonna get the support and it's gonna materialize into something and it's gonna create the change in the community because you're doing. So little sister, all you gotta do is give a couple of your friends that believe in it, start doing, get some graphics done, create a website, uh, get your mission statement together and go out there and execute and everything gonna come because now you had the, the power to put the pressures, the pressures on the corporations in that community that's making all that money. The politicians, you can put the pressure on them when you got action and you got um, proof of concept. You just got to do it. All right.
2: All right. Y'all, I'm running, I'm running low one time.
3: All right, my name's A1 Mook. I'm an artist out of Boston. I just want to ask as, like, black men and women, we make it look easy when we go through our ups and downs. And I want to know, like, what made y'all, like, like y'all drive to keep going and, like, feel like I couldn't make it out of the whatever I go through, you know? Like, what made you, like, put your foot down, like? Uh, I don't really know. Uh, I can't really tell you. I would say a teaching from my mom and a drive yeah. from God. It's always in the hood. If I'm around 10 guys, I'm gonna yeah. be in the top three guys that's like the leaders. I'm gonna be a choice maker. I was always programmed to go with your move, go with you know, no matter what. Uh, the system was like a, a hurdle for me. I, I was taught when you face hur- hurdles, you go 10 times harder. You don't sit back and cry about it, because crying don't really get nothing done. You know, you try to fix the situation, and that was just my teaching. I don't know if I learned it from my mom, or it was just a God-given talent. But my drive, I would say, always make me want to work harder when I take a loss, for se.
8: All right, over here. So, so thank you for this panel. My name is Stacy Borden. I am I the executive director and founder of New Beginners Rancher Services, formerly incarcerated woman. First black woman to have this reentry program in our community. I'm not Congrats. quite sure what the question is, but I have to say, I mean, we have a progressive DA, Rachel Jones, in our audience, and without the hope and the strength of her hearing us, hearing the movement, hearing the parts of our incarcerated people who are serving natural life sentences, we have people federal level just serving marijuana sentences for life. We know that. We have women like we brought Angie Jefferson home after 31 years from her discriminatory practices that we've been doing for the past decades. I think the question is, what is your look on ending LWAP? Or do you all do the work with some of our progressive district attorneys or any of our policymakers who continue to discard us and not make the right policies?
2: And so LWAP, for people who don't know, is life without the possibility of parole. And I appreciate that, Stacey, because as a formerly incarcerated person, you know oftentimes we're addressed through hierarchy with people who have nonviolent crimes being the most palatable for change, but many of us Understand, when you go behind the wall, you survive through community. If I got a sausage and you got a soup, now we got dinner. And those are often people who don't have a pathway home. And I feel that charge and responsibility to lift up people like my sister, Bianca Irby, in the state of Alabama, who's been put off for the possibility of parole five years, the maximum, at least three times, and say explicitly that we have people who do not have a pathway home who deserve to come home. And I absolutely agree with you. As it was stated before, it's going to take electing different decision-makers to do that. And I think having people like this caliber of panel come and yeah. continue to educate people and place a sense of urgency around this issue will be our pathway to get there. You. All right. Good to see you too, Ms. Green. <laughs> All right, let's keep them coming quickly. Name and question, please.
6: Yeah, I'll be fast. What's up, cuz? I kind of know her in the middle, so I don't gotta ask her anything. I know her life. But you two guys, man, Meek and Wallow, um, and I know this might be far-fetched. If you guys didn't go to what y'all go to as you being a motivational speaker, you being the, the great rapper you are, if you didn't get the, I don't wanna call it luck either, if the blessing didn't come for you to be the rapper you are, and the motivational speaker you you are right now, what would you guys be doing right now? You think in Philly? I'd
3: probably be dead or in jail. Me, myself, my now, environment, basically, uh, coming out of just high school, you know, in suburban areas, playing basketball and football is the thing. In our area, it's like beating, you know, a s- extremely bad environment and making the right decisions. You could just make one bad decision and in your whole life in them environment. I don't know if you come from that environment. Would you say rap saved you? Say, uh, Would yeah, you rap, say rap saved you? Yeah, rap, rap career? Saved, saved my entire life, okay. basically. Me, to- me, i just give you my advice. I put it all on the line. I put all my energy into putting on the line with no plan B and just ain't look back. That, that actually worked for me.
1: Okay.
2: Thank you. I appreciate right, it. You're welcome too. Okay, my last question is coming right here. and Then we have to go to the close. I, I'm sorry, y'all.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, name, name and is, question. Yeah, my name is Gene. Um, I have a question just like based on the title Justice, Justice Impacted Brilliance, like you guys all like redefine the word brilliance to me. And like one thing that I'm leaving this talk with is understanding that brilliance is resilience. Like all of you guys on the panel have showed that like you have fallen and you've been able to get back up. So I'm wondering, my question basically is like, how do you define brilliance? If it is resilience or if it is another key thing? Um, just for like a young person like me and any other young person to know how to understand brilliance in another context? Uh, me, I, I call myself a hybrid, you know? Uh, you got people that street smart, you got people that smart in school, uh, you got people like lawyers, what I was speaking on earlier, they know a secret language that I don't know, you know? They're brilliant to me and what they do, you know? But if you put me in a terrible environment, I'm brilliant in surviving. I'm brilliant in making decisions. I'm brilliant in uh, picking a side of right. Uh, you know, these things that I can't tell you how I got it. I just, I always wanted to be somebody that was in our, in our community. They never taught us how good being smart was. They say, get your education. But you know, it's, it's many types of education. It's not just math, science, and social studies, you know? I learned, I stepped in the education of making great decisions and making timely decisions and doing things, uh, going to the studio 90 days straight just to learn that, 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 that talent a little bit better than the next person. So I don't know where I got it from. Uh, I just think being smart and, and focusing on trying to be smart in any situation to get you through most situations.
2: Give my brilliant panel some love, y'all. Yeah. Well, not just two more yeah. It is Harvard's absolute honor to be able to welcome such brilliant experts. We thank you for educating us, for pouring out your gifts, and just for being such a beacon of hope. Please show them some love, y'all.
3: Uh, thank you, guys. so, uh, so uh, if I could say this, uh, Just being here on this panel with you guys, I come from a background where my life was more like that of what I was telling you guys. It was more of extreme, terrible environment than this. You know, I've been on this side, living this life for like seven, eight, nine years. And things like this, coming to Harvard, having reform, uh, being a part of foundations and giving back to my people, these are things that helped me change. There's no amount of money, there's no uh, stars or no different environments that I've been to. Things like this uh, help me see the value in myself and helping me become a better person. I have no plans on being a politician, a perfect person. I am a rap artist, never forget that. You're gonna see me, you're never gonna see me cross the boundary line, but you're gonna see me having fun living my life. And I wanna remain that and do good for my people as much as I can. So I appreciate you guys for having me here today.
1: The Born Curious podcast is brought to you by Harvard
0: Radcliffe Institute. Thanks for joining us. You can find Born Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Harvard Radcliffe Institute,
1: visit radcliffe.harvard.edu.